This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Try Texture right now for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. The Weeds is supported by Goldman Sachs. To learn about developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy, subscribe to the firm's podcast, Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, available on iTunes. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. Take something off your to-do list. Just go to clubw.com slash weeds to get $20 off of your first order now. That's clubw.com slash weeds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Just put some salt on your matzah and taste it. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Sarah Cliff is, is back with us. Back from vacation. Isn't, isn't this more fun than vacation? Oh my gosh, I just love a good podcast. I was in a place where I ate a lot of bread, and now I'm not allowed to eat bread because of a holiday. Things are just, just going my way. Also Ezra. Ezra. Ezra's here. I'm so. still here. How's it been going? Eh. Meh. I mean, you've been gone, so it's kind of just been me and Matt. It's yeah. been weird, frankly. Oh, yeah, things awkward. got a little touchy. Oh, so yeah, we're, we're we're glad to have you back, and and glad to really get weedsier than we've been. Talk about some taxes. I, I want to note this is not just some taxes. We have a special all tax edition of the weeds where we will talk about three taxes, none of which has any real chance of happening anytime in the near future, nationally at least, mm-hmm. but that are interesting in part because they're unusual taxes in and of themselves and in part because they are unusual ways to think about what you're trying to do with taxes. So we're going to talk today about a land value tax, which many economists believe to be the most efficient of all taxes and which I have never been able to fully understand, then soda or sugar drink taxes, and finally... The carbon tax. The big culmination of this episode. Yeah, the finale. It's it's like uh, like fireworks at the end of the episode. Least weedsy to mo- or most weedsy to least weedsy. Land value tax is pretty weedsy. Yeah, most right. weedsy. That's where we start. Oh okay. right, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, it's going to be great. So land value tax. It's a great tax. Everybody <laughs> loves it. There's some people who think they've discovered problems with land value tax, and and they're mistaken. You go back to Adam Smith. He says what we should have is a land value tax. David Ricardo says we should have a land value tax. Trouble arises because of Henry George, who's associated with the land value tax. He has this, I think, slightly cranky viewpoint that land value tax is so good that it should be the only tax. Can we... Can we say but what a land value so, tax so, is? But so let's say what it is. Let's say what it is. But I, I just, I, I want to establish, like, this comes up sometimes in, like, wonky sections of the media because there is such a firm consensus among the greats of economics that the only question is, is, like, should we abolish all taxes <laughs> or should this just be, like, one of a few? Um, <laughs> I think everywhere in the United States, local government is financed in part by a property tax where they do an assessment on people's houses, their shopping malls, et cetera. And they say, this stuff is worth whatever amount of money. And then we assess a tax rate on it and you have to pay it every year. And it's a form of a wealth tax, the property tax, but it's a kind that local governments like to use because as we talked about in our tax shelters, it's pretty easy to like squirrel away financial wealth. It's hard to hide the gas station that you own because it's it's right there. Everyone knows it's there. Same with your house. You can't really pick up and leave because, you know, it's, it's there. So land value tax takes the same principle but says just tax the land. Don't tax the buildings that are there. And it, it says for the reason that essentially – The problem with taxes, although it's the upside, allegedly, of of some of the taxes we'll talk about later, but traditionally you think, okay, the problem with taxes is if you charge an income tax, it discourages people from working. If you charge a tax on investment income, it discourages people from saving and investing in, in great things. If you charge a tax on the value of land that people own, it doesn't discourage people from making land because you can't really make land. It's a difficult engineering challenge and a political problem and not really an economic one. So if the city of Washington raises the taxes on the value of the land that's here, people may be sad in the sense that landowners would have less money, but nothing 
deleterious would occur to the local economy. Whereas when you tax buildings, it creates a disincentive to put new buildings up. So in crowded urban areas, this is maybe not as much of a sort of a practical concern, but this is an idea that comes out of 18th century England. It applies very much to rural and, and a lot of suburban communities where when you tax property, you discourage people from building. If you refocus the tax exclusively on land value, then you don't get that. You should have more economic activity. So one of the things that helped me was thinking through like who in a world where we switch to land value tax, and I was just thinking of it as a substitute for property tax, like let's say the other taxes stay there and we're not doing like the crazy right. replace everything. So the people who benefit are people who are very efficient with their land. So someone who builds like a really high skyscraper. So I was thinking of my neighborhood in Mount Pleasant, and presumably the incentive under a land value tax is to build more floors on my row house because... Yes you're not going to get taxed on that more expensive property. Whereas if, let's say, there's a vacant lot next to me, that's the person who's really getting dinged under this. So the thing you're trying to do is incentivize more activity on land. Is that like a fair way to think about it? Yeah, or or the alternative way to think about it is you're trying to tax away an economic rent. If you just own some land and you are obtaining income from it, you haven't done anything. You're just making money because you had money in the past and acquired land. Whereas if you build a house and then you make money by renting the house out, you're getting an economic reward for doing something. So, yeah, I mean, the idea is to to incentivize. It is complicated politically and practically in the United States by the fact that most people in the U.S., live in owner-occupied houses. The idea comes out of a very differently structured kind of society. But if you think about a place like San Francisco or New York, where most people are renters, or if you get into some really complicated mechanics about tax incidents, you'll see it, it doesn't quite matter. But yeah, I mean, the idea is to encourage people to use the land that they own, to increase the economic reward to doing something with land, and minimize the economic reward to simply owning it. So I think the way Sarah was approaching this, though, is helpful for clarifying it. Let's say we move to a land value tax in a substantial way, whether right. wholly or, or partly mm-hmm. of our tax code tomorrow. Who are the winners of that and who are the losers of that change compared to the current system or compared primarily to the income and payroll tax system? It does depend what you what you crowd out. But so if you imposed like a federal land tax and used it to cut payroll taxes, right, the winners would be low-income workers who would have a big cut in their taxes and no kind of increase. The losers would be, to an extent, senior citizens who already paid payroll taxes while they were working, probably own homes, things like that. The biggest losers would be people who own big tracts of land, big-ish houses in very expensive areas of the country. So if you look at someone who owns a house in the suburbs of San Antonio, the value of that quote unquote house is almost all the value of the structure that is on the house because land is cheap in Texas. And the difference between an expensive house and a cheap house is an expensive house is big and nice and new. Right. But if you go to like Arlington County, where houses are much more expensive than in Texas, what we call the value of the quote unquote house is mostly the value of the land. Right. Mm -hmm. People are living in, you know, they're nice houses, but they're not like grandiose mansions. They're expensive because the land is expensive. And how does that work for you if you live in a condo building? So I live in a building that has four residential units in it. Do I, and like a commercial unit and so forth, like do I pay whatever it is, a sixth of the land value tax? Yeah, I or? mean, you would have to divide it up for, for condos and, and co-ops. And you would see that in that case, like a really tall building on very expensive land, the land tax per resident would be pretty low because it's divided up in a lot of ways. I live in a two-unit condo, so I'd probably be a loser under this system. I grew up in a like a giant 14-story building. And, you know, those people in Manhattan, and those people would probably be winners. I I think it's complicated to do the, the detailed analysis. But in general, it would be like people who own detached homes in expensive suburbs are the biggest losers. Some kinds of urban homeowners are losers. Some urban homeowners are winners. Renters everywhere are winners. Low income people in the cheap housing parts of the country would be winners. What Sarah was talking about, a, you know, a, a different proposal is just on a local basis to drop the property tax, increase the land value tax. That's a little bit more of a 
politically tractable kind of change. Several towns in Pennsylvania have done this. I think Altoona is the most extreme example. I thought Altoona's thing fell apart. Oh, Dylan, Dylan. Oh, wonk checked. Do you remember this? You remember? I do. Dylan was always supposed to go to Altoona. Dylan's white whale, the Altoona article. Yeah. And anyway, it turns out they have high levels of lead, too. Oh, kind Altoona. of a bummer. Uh, many Pennsylvania towns do it's a what. Deep wonk blog cut. Do. Right there. <laughs> the Altoona. The Altoona. Uh, Altoona files. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. M- many Pennsylvania towns tax land values at a higher rate than they tax improvements without going to zero. And you do see more building activity in the towns that go further in that regard. The other thing you see is that this is the kind of change that's more politically feasible in part because it isn't a huge conceptual game changer. So small changes are more practical. Small changes also don't make as big of a difference. There's an interesting sort of dispute. Paul Krugman was inspired once by people uh, on the internet to write about land value tax. And he said, yes, of course, everybody's right. This is a more efficient tax. But also you shouldn't listen to these, these land value tax cranks who say it could like replace all our taxes on everything. Land is not that valuable. I worked with a guy named Ashok Rao, who was a, a student at, at Penn at the time, and is a very smart guy, very interested in this. And he put together some calculations, and I worked with him on it a little, to suggest that, that Krugman was wrong about that, and that while a land value tax probably could not replace all the taxes in the United States, it could replace like a lot of them. Total value of, of land in the U.S. is something about like $15 trillion. And then on top of that, there's a question about how you should treat mineral rights, coal and oil, things that are sort of land-esque. So depending on how you wanted to look at it, if, if you really did want to do a sort of big bang, total conceptual overhaul, you could turn a land value tax, I would say, into the like the workhorse tax, the way income and payroll taxes are not the only way we raise revenue in the United States, but it's the overwhelming majority of federal revenue, a lot of state revenue, and like the main thing that comes to mind when we say taxes. You could do that with land. It would require probably constitutional amendments and other things that aren't going to happen, but it's for real. Yeah. So let me talk through because I find it it's conceptually almost challenging to wrap my head around. So I was trying to think through like, okay, like let's say I live in a world where we do this, where we go like whole hog Uh on land value tax. I am a renter right now. So presumably I was trying to think through the chain of events that happens next. So I continue renting my place. My income goes up because I'm paying, let's say like we get rid of some like income payroll taxes. So I'm earning a lot more money. My landlord now has this new tax. They're paying property taxes right now, but their taxes go up, I presume. Would go up. So far. So far. So what does it mean for someone who's a renter? Presumably, they would want to charge more. I would also have more disposable income to pay more. So like, where where do you see it leaving people who are renting, who are kind of like in an interesting situation? The important question is what happens in the sort of the third iteration, right? So on day one, on the one hand, you have an increase in the cost on the landlords. You have an increase in the ability to pay on the part of renters. Rent should go up, not so much because of the increased cost to the landlord, but because incomes have risen. So so demand for housing goes up. Can I just note here, one, this is a just to give a example that we've talked about in the weeks before. This is quite similar at this point point in the argument to the single payer arguments around Bernie Sanders and taxation. It does increase your taxes, but because you have a lot more disposable income because now money that was being paid by your employer on your behalf is in theory going into your wages, you can pay those taxes. Like it's a pass through. Right. Well, except, I mean, this is clearer. I mean, the yeah. income tax mm-hmm. that's taken out of your check would, would go away. So then your income would rise, but your rent would probably rise too. So you might say, well, I'm no better off. Then it depends, though, where you live. Because if you live in most of America, what's going to happen with rents up and property taxes drastically declined and incomes up is there's going to be a lot of new building. So if you're talking about the impact on people who live in the Houston area, we're all going to end up living in bigger, better houses because we're going to have higher incomes, lower property taxes. And because much, your big house isn't taxed, much like more, you may as well build a McMansion because exactly. you can do that for the same price exactly. as building a one-bedroom. So, so everyone in Texas is going to end up with bigger houses and higher living standards. That's the win. It's not always compelling to liberals because liberals think big houses are tacky. I think, <laughs> like a normal person, I think big houses are awesome. The interesting question for the United States is what would happen in the fancy coastal cities? Because right now, 
the economic logic would say, well, we should have a building boom in San Francisco. We should have a building boom in Arlington County. We should have a building boom in suburban New Jersey. But the existing price of housing in those places also suggests we should have a building boom, but we don't have a building boom because we have zoning rules that curb new construction. So uh, land value tax would essentially be, in a Leninist way, like heightening the contradictions on this. Existing rules that are already constraining housing supply and making people live in smaller, more expensive houses than they are would become an even bigger, bigger deal. Mm -hmm. So one possibility is it would be the straw that breaks the camel's back. You would deregulate. We'd have giant houses everywhere. Another possibility is that expensive coastal cities would become even more expensive, but it would be progressive distributionally. The people who live in those expensive coastal areas are richer than average. They would be paying more taxes, the money would be redistributed to middle class people living in giant houses in Houston. So I have a couple of questions here. One thing I find sort of interesting about the land value tax argument and the degree of appeal it has to people online is that on the one hand, it's very interesting. You're dealing with a tax that is conceptually more efficient than, than anything that we have currently. On the other hand, it is trivial to design tax systems that are conceptually more efficient than what we have currently. I mean, you do, you do not have to come up with land value taxes, right? Like you have things that are much more within the zone of political possibility. And a general conclusion I have about American politics is that tax efficiency is just not that high of a goal for normal people. For that matter, it's not that high of a goal even for members of the political system. And one of the, the difficult things with thinking about a land value tax, particularly at a federal level at this point, is that the transition costs are somewhat insane. You just walked through the one, two, three year thing. But I think that within that three year period, you have some kind of revolution. <laughs> right. <laughs> because what you're doing, and, and Tim Lee wrote a good, uh, our colleague Tim Lee at Vox wrote a good piece uh, at his uh, old blog on this. But the problem is that in a transition from where we are now to, to, to something like land value tax, you have such a tremendous set of winners and losers. It is such a different equilibrium. I mean, again, it's, a, I think, a good example to, to single-payer questions, which an idealized single-payer system is much more efficient than what we have now. But that transition has a lot of winners and losers. Trying to compensate those winners and losers ends up adding a lot of complexity and kludge into the system. And at the end of it, you're, you're left with something that may or may not ultimately be more efficient than what you have now. And I, I feel this is the truth of land value tax, that there's a little bit of a category error being made in some of the, the arguments I see for it, as if the problem with the current tax code is that people did not know that there were more efficient ways to do it, as opposed to moving into a more efficient space for taxation comes with a lot of losers. Another thing that I just think is interesting about land value taxes, even if you do sort of decide to just think of it as an intellectual exercise, is to say that distributional questions actually end up mattering here in, in, in different ways. At land value taxes, I can imagine ways of tweaking land value taxes to take into account more distributional concerns. But I think in a, in a pretty raw form, you would have a lot of people that you don't necessarily want to be paying a super high tax bill, ending up with a very high tax bill. You'd have some people who you want to be paying much more, ending up with a pretty low tax bill. And that's one reason the, the income to land value tax shift doesn't always seem incredibly persuasive to Well, me. Well, that's why I, I said at the beginning, land value tax is very associated with Henry George and with this single tax movement, which I think is not a useful thing to talk about. Among other things, I mean, it's it's not constitutional in the United States. And it would be crazy to try to get a constitutional amendment to engineer a tax reform for, for reasons Ezra outlines. Although that was true for the income tax, too. It was, yes, which is interesting. But uh, what, what I would... We're going to have a political revolution, Matt. What I wish... <laughs> starts right here. <laughs> people appreciated more about this, though, was that leaving aside this question of, like, the single tax, is that we pay land value taxes in the United States. Every town, every county, every city that I'm familiar with taxes land value currently. It's just that with the possible exception of Altoona, they also tax the value of existing structures. The transition for individual towns and counties to say we are going to lower our rate of taxation mm -hmm. and improvements and raise the rate of taxation on land is on the one hand, it's like less fun to write a manifesto about how this is going to change the world because what it's going to do is modestly improve the world. But it's 
totally politically plausible. Local governments tweak their taxes all the time. So why why don't we see a ton of localities with a land value tax? I think the main reason it doesn't happen is related to the reason that it's good, that you are shifting the burden around in a way that disadvantages land rents. But this is in society, the people who tend to be most powerful are the people who have already accumulated capital in the past. And then it's conceptually weird. You know, people aren't familiar with it. It's not a great slogan that people are going to understand, right? So if people want to get out in the streets in Chicago and say, like, they're against school closures and these layoffs and, like, instead of doing this stuff, Rahm Emanuel should be spending the more money and it's, like, tax the 1%. And, like, that's something people understand, And if you were to come out and say, like, we should have a differential tax on land, right, it's just it's not it's not a great organizing point. And one of the reasons, as you said, Ezra, is that, you know, most people don't care that much about the efficiency of the tax system. You have people who want the government to have more revenue so that they can spend it on something or other. And you have people who don't like government spending, don't like paying taxes. They want to minimize their tax bill. Economists are very interested in tax efficiency, but normal people are not. Political coalitions are not. And what political coalitions who want taxes are typically looking to do is find the lowest hanging fruit politically to just get the revenue that they need. They're not super duper interested in the efficiency of tax system design. It's like they want to build a new library and now they're trying to come up with a way to do it. And that's why there's any number of ways we could make the tax code more efficient than it is because the tax code that exists has not been designed in order to be efficient. It's been designed in order to be politically expedient. I I remember like in a, a different level, local tax reform, DC, like most places, has a retail sales tax. A couple of years ago, some wonks talked to the city council and they're like, oh, instead of having a retail sales tax, we should have a more European style general tax on consumption. So certain services including, for example, yoga lessons that are oh, currently yeah. this exempt. This is very contentious. Right. Exempt from sales tax. Area. We're going to be subject to sales tax, and consequently, right. we were going to get lower rates. You cannot find a legitimate objection to this idea. It's just that, like, yoga instructors, they didn't want to be taxed. I think there's a legitimate there's a legitimate public health objection to well, taxing but, but healthy behavior. But it wasn't specifically a tax. It wasn't, but, but this, listen. anyways. I think it's legitimate. I'm with the yoga teachers. But this, I big, think, yeah, I'm, in the, yoga I'm, in, I'm in the pants of big yoga. I think, I think Sarah, but okay, so, the, it's, so it's not just yoga teachers, though. Pants of big yoga? Yoga pants, I don't Here, know. let me, let me give, keep moving. Let me give a, a, a better example. <laughs> Under the current law, if you go hire a tax attorney to help you do estate planning, that service is not subject to sales taxes. But if you go buy some shoes... It is. So they wanted to change it so that professional services would be taxed. Like uh, Anyway, the point is people just objected to the change because it was bad for some people. They made a lot of noise. The yoga instructors in particular were a powerful lobby (laughs) who helped tax attorneys. They turned Sarah Cliff an important public policy writer. So I have a question that I didn't see addressed in any of the land tax value literature. So I was trying to think through like what this does to an urban environment, uh, mostly because I'm self-centered and I live in an urban environment. And it seems like there's, like, a very high potential for, like, terrible hellscape. And I'll walk you through my thinking on it. So it seems like you get a very dense urban environment. So if I think of, like, the area I live that's, like, a lot of row houses, it basically all gets bulldozed and made into, like, a really giant condo that's, like, just shorter than the Washington Monument because that's what your incentive is. And you can cram a lot of people into a condo building there. But I don't see how infrastructure keeps up with that. Like, it seems like you end up with this, like, situation where you have, like, really, really dense areas. And maybe, like, your incentive then is to move out to nowhere Maryland where you can, like, build your giant house. And that ends up in some kind of equilibrium. But it seems, like, almost a little bleak to me, like, where urban areas end up. This this is just a pure zoning question. So Mount Pleasant is in the R4 zone, Mm -hmm. and you can't replace The R4 zone. R4, yes. Yes. I believe. um, It it, it might be R3, but I think it's R4. And I think you can't replace those houses with denser houses. Now, I think if you go to, like, the corner of 13th and N, where it is all (laughs) 10-story apartments, you will see it's not, like, a hellscape. The streets are fine. Um, Some people 
prefer to live in Mount Pleasant than to live there, but like, it's okay. It's true, obviously, that if you had many more people living in the city, you would need more infrastructure, but you would also have... Is that an accurate thing to think about the land value tax, that you would end up with more people? Or do you think like you end up in this equilibrium where people just say, you know, well, screw mean, it, I'm moving out to like build my giant house somewhere uh, where the land is. Well, free. I mean, it, it depends where you do it, right? I mean, so like if D.C., one jurisdiction that went to land value tax might increase its population relative to other neighboring kinds of areas. If you did it nationwide, I mean, I don't know, right? I mean, the national population is determined by people's fertility choices and immigration, not by housing policy. I do think this is a reason, right? I mean, I think one thing that we're getting at in a lot of this is that in economic terms, it would be more efficient for expensive places to be denser. But Many people don't want them to be denser. And so we have adopted actually a lot of rules to avoid that from happening. So making a tax reform to encourage density in places which have deliberately adopted zoning rules to prevent it is like a little, well, why would you do that? Right? Like I might do it to try to trick them into changing their zoning rules. But the idea of changing the tax code in general, is to make things be different from how they are right now. But in a lot of cases, people like the status quo. Everyone wishes they could pay lower taxes or whatever. But I mean, these uh, utopian schemes to radically revise taxes, the goal is to make actual outcomes look really different from how they are. And lots of people like existing Speaking of turning uh, urban centers into dystopian hellscapes, I think we should talk about the soda tax after this break. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Texture. Texture is, is this great app. It's kind of like Netflix, but but for reading. You know, so instead of binge watching, you, you get to binge read, specifically binge read magazines. And when it comes to magazines, you know, you tend to know what you like. And with Texture, you can get all the magazines you might want in one simple, super convenient place, plus interactive features, videos, and recommendations for, for more things to read. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anytime, anywhere, using your smartphone or tablet. You can breeze through hundreds of your favorite magazines, including back issues, and pick the articles that interest you most. Texture's made it really easy to find articles you care about. I don't just get to read like New York and Bon Appetit, but the Texture editorial team recommends content for me every day. Plus, I can dive deep into personalized collections. So sign up for Texture right now and gain insider access to all the content from the world's best publications. The best part? Texture's offering our listeners a free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash weeds. You'll gain immediate entry to all the top magazines, including back issues and bonus video content. So try Texture right now for free when you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. We are back. Matt has switched microphones at the break. It's been very eventful here. And we are going to talk about our next big tax, soda taxes. So Philadelphia right now is having a debate that's starting to become national thanks to the campaign over whether it should add a three cent soda tax to sugary beverages. Per ounce. Per ounce. A three tax per ounce tax. So for if you're thinking like a can of Coke, I think it's like 12 ounces or so. So you're looking at like an extra few quarters or so on your soda. And it's become a divisive issue in the Democratic primary where you see Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders taking really different viewpoints that I think are both accurate and really point to some of the challenges that public health advocates face when they talk about soda taxes. So generally, as a public health measure, soda taxes, you know, as we talked about land value taxes, sometimes we worry about taxes discouraging behavior. That's exactly what a soda tax is supposed to do. If it makes soda more expensive, the idea is people will purchase less of it, they'll drink less of it. And the ultimate public health goal is to make people healthier and reduce obesity. So you've seen, you know, a lot of talk about soda taxes, very few actually getting off the ground. There's currently one city in the country that does have a soda tax, and that is Berkeley, California, unsurprisingly. Um, I am shocked. Yeah, I know. Whoa, if true. Did they have a huge obesity problem in Berkeley, California? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about their obesity pro- problem. I'm actually surprised New York City does not have a soda tax. Well, so Bloomberg tried his large right. beverage tax. It got killed in the courts. That was even a, that was, well, we, it was like sort of a different offshoot thing, right? of a thing. Yeah. So the idea of the soda tax is to limit soda consumption. And that's, you know, generally an idea I think public health advocates support. Where it gets a little contentious is when you think about what effects a soda tax has. And I think it's helpful to talk about the candidates' positions on it. So you have Hillary. Can I ask you a very yes. quick uh, clarification question? Does a soda tax like the one in Philadelphia literally only apply to soda or does it apply to Tropicana orange juice, right? Is it about the sugar in a beverage or is it literally a carbonated 
So each one is written a bit differently. So usually it's supposed to capture sugary drinks. I don't know how juice usually falls in, but like Diet Coke, for example, usually does not get included. Right, because no Um, sugar. I remember writing about when Bloomberg was working on his large soda ban, milkshakes uh, caught up in the fray, where milkshakes were... Correctly. (laughs) Correctly. (laughs) So milkshakes are not a carbonated beverage, obviously, but you know if you were going to order a large milkshake in Bloomberg's ideal world, you were going to get taxed So the soda tax does not tax some things that, that are, are unambiguously well, so soda, but it yeah. does tax some things that nobody would call soda. It's more accurate to consider it a sugary drinks okay. tax, but that doesn't really like roll off the tongue But it's as well. not a tax on the sugar content. So this is inter- this is something like regulatory you have to figure out is like, what does your tax hit? For example, Gatorade does have a decent amount of sugar, but it also has a lot less calories than soda. Like, do you want your soda tax to hit sports drinks is an interesting question. Or juices is like an interesting and, question. And I know we're slightly going off on a situation no, before the campaign stuff. But Britain is doing a very interesting version of this where they have a tiered soda tax depending on how much sugar is in a drink. So I think if it's like three teaspoons per however many ounces, it's one amount. Then if it's above that, it's another amount. Well, that seems like but it makes more sense. It does. But, but the question I was going to ask you about this, Sarah, is... Why did we get into taxing drinks and not just calories? So I can imagine a sugar tax that says for every 100 calories, if it has more than five teaspoons of sugar or whatever it might be, it's going to be taxed at whatever rate we consider optimal. But we didn't do that. We we went right to drinks. Why? One thing that helps me is like look at the chronology of public health taxes. So you really see it starting or one of the big successful taxes was a cigarette tax. So you see cigarette taxes going up higher and cigarette use just really falling a lot. It was a very successful public health tax that was really celebrated. We know point blank that nicotine is bad for you. We know that it's like you're not going to get healthier smoking. Food is a little trickier because we know that food can be bad for you, but you also need food to survive. So it gets into this like hard area where when we tax cigarettes, we say, well, no one's going to face a health detriment for that. Taxing food is a lot harder. So, you know, some level of sugar is okay. It's fine to have some level of it. And that's where it gets a little more complicated. So you have seen one government that did try to do something like what you're talking about. In 2011, Denmark implemented the only fat tax in the world. It was a tax on any products that had more than 2.3% saturated fat. So they were basically trying this approach, saying like, you know, why limit it to one thing when it's really saturated fat? That is the problem. Unfortunately for health wonks around the world, this tax was repealed a year later when I was actually just rereading an amazing Wall Street Journal article on this where Danish people just, they stopped shopping in in Denmark. They just left. They would go across the border to buy butter or to buy cheese because it was a lot cheaper to do so in Germany. There's a Wall Street Journal reporter who went to a supermarket in Germany and they were seeing that there were just a lot of Danish cars that were there. It didn't work. Maybe it would work if you did it like on a national level. So we only have one experiment in this like tax all of a substance. Right. It'd be hard for people living in, I don't know, Missouri to go to Mexico to buy their Sure. Dishes. But it would be easy for people living in Philadelphia yes. to go to the suburbs. Right. So this, yeah, yeah, is, I guess so this is one of the hard yeah, things yeah, of city fair. taxes. Right. It's like very easy geographically to avoid them. And another way to avoid them is just to like switch to something else. So, you know, one of the things that we definitely do see about soda taxes, they do appear to reduce soda consumption. There's a really good study of Mexico City's soda tax that really shows people consuming less soda. What we haven't been able to see yet is any meaningful reduction in calorie consumption. It seems like people might be, you know, getting ice cream instead, like getting something else. It kind of speaks to your idea of like, well, why not tax all the sugar? I think it's a harder endeavor. It's a lot easier to tax like this one thing we know about. But it means it's a less strong signal from the market. It's much easier to replace those calories. Can I, can I ask another question about Philadelphia? Because when, yeah. when I hear Philadelphia wants to tax soda, my knee-jerk impression is that they don't actually care about the public health benefits of this, that they're just looking for a politically viable revenue source. So like, is this structured? Is this a revenue neutral soda tax proposal? Or is it that the soda tax is going to finance some new playgrounds or or something? That is a great question that I don't know the answer to. Because when I remember this first coming up, it, it was in the context of some like goofy draft from the Senate health committee when they were doing the Obamacare legislation. And in that context, it was very clear that 
the proposal was to raise some revenue in a kind of health-oriented kind of – and it makes a little bit of sense, right? Like we were talking about with the land value tax. One thing you might say is, OK, well, we're going to have like a tax. Uh, we're going to just raise taxes on the rich. And you might say, oh, well, they'll all go galt and the economy will collapse. So if you talk about a soda tax, you say, well, OK, we need some more revenue to build the playgrounds. We're going to have this soda tax. And then if the tax skeptic comes up and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. If you raise taxes on soda, uh, children are going to stop drinking soda. And then you're like, well, okay, that's not so bad, right? <laughs> if you're just trying to get revenue and then it's like your fallback is like, well, worst case scenario, people drink less soda, that makes a more sense to me than if you're saying like, well, we're going to try to get people to not drink soda because – because we think it'll be a public health benefit. Because the, we think it'll be a public question, health game changer. The question you're asking actually beautifully puts us back on our original track because that right. is very related to Hillary Clinton's advocacy here. That is a good point, and we'll come back to it right after a quick ad. The Weeds is brought to you by Goldman Sachs. For answers to the world's most pressing economic questions from the latest in emerging markets to finding the next big computing platform, tune into Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, the firm's podcast. Each episode features in-depth discussions with some of the firm's leading experts on the markets, evolving industries, and the global economy. Subscribe to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Or listen at gs.com slash podcast. So Clinton is in favor of the Philadelphia support tax. She says it's a good public health aim and something, you know, that she would support that you could put that money back into the community. Early childhood education. Okay, yeah. So that's one way to finance another program. It's hard for me to see like Clinton being like, let's say it doesn't raise revenue, people stop drinking soda. You know, you either end up with early childhood education or healthier eating habits would be like the hope. Like neither are terrible outcomes. I don't know, Ezra, but, you look like but, you have something to say. Well, you may be about to say okay. it about because I think Bernie Sanders yeah. has uh, it's not an objection I totally I 100 percent buy, but I think it is a fair. Yeah. objection. So Sanders here. objection to the soda tax is he sees it as very regressive, that it is a tax on low income people who do tend to consume more soda. So they're essentially bearing the brunt of it. And so that's where you see this split. And I think both of them. They both understand it correctly. It's not like someone's like trying to mischaracterize the soda tax. They just have very different views of whether this would be positive or negative for Philadelphia to have this kind of tax structure. And one thing that I think is is interesting in the debate is that, OK, the, the counter argument to Sanders' point, because he's right, these are regressive taxes. But the counter argument to his point is, yeah, but but the benefits on both ends are progressive. Like mm -hmm. if, if the fact is that poor people drink more highly sugared soda and so end up with more diabetes, cutting that, it's not a monetary gain. I mean, it is indirectly, but it, it's not primarily a monetary gain. It's a health gain that is distributed progressively. Mm -hmm. And even if they end up paying the tax, what it's paying for is also very progressive. It is very common to have somewhat regressive taxes that pay for progressive services. It's actually something interesting about Bernie Sanders's campaign in general in that he wants to make us into a Scandinavian country uh, or he wants to more closely mimic the, the structure of Scandinavian countries, but they often use more regressive taxes to pay for progressive services. But that said, I think that this is a place where, to, to Matt's point a little bit, using regressive public health taxes to fund government programs puts you in a little bit of a, a strange position. Because on the one hand, if you're just making a straight, and this is really what it is, a straight paternalism argument, a straight, we know what is better for you and what is better for you is to drink fewer sugary beverages or to consume less food or drink with sugar in it altogether. Okay, you can have that argument. But the problem is it's an argument that makes a lot of people pretty uncomfortable. Right. This was right? the Bloomberg argument where you straight up banned yeah, the large the way, sodas. Right. Where or you say we're not, yeah. Or, but then you have this move that gets done in order to not make it just like pure paternalism, right? Oh, it's actually just like a really good way to fund early childhood education, which makes it a kind of a softer policy in its totality, but then creates this question of, well, why are you creating a regressive tax to fund mm -hmm. early childhood education? The hope of, of sort of the tax wonks here is that what ends up happening is that poor people are more tax sensitive. And so they stop drinking as much soda and get the health benefits. And then rich people who like don't really care that much mm -hmm. or, or even 
upper middle class or middle class people who don't care that much about this level of tax end up paying for early childhood And you do education. have some evidence of this in Mexico City, which is the largest city that's done a soda tax. They saw much steeper declines. I think it was a 17% decline among low-income residents of Mexico City in soda consumption compared to a 12% decline among richer residents, which does suggest some evidence for this. I think it's also helpful to go back to the cigarette tax, which is kind of the inspiration for all of this. And again, so the cigarette tax was often used to funnel back into tobacco prevention programs. And cigarette tax definitely is a regressive tax. Low-income Americans smoke at higher rates than high-income Americans. One of the things you do see, there is at least somewhat of a virtuous cycle there where they are funneled into tobacco prevention programs. There are fewer smokers. You need smaller tobacco prevention programs. So it does work in a bit of a loop there. I mean, one of the things that's different here is you're moving into like a different, I don't know if there's like a soda prevention program, like maybe it's getting people healthier foods, but that's one place where you do see, it seems like a virtuous cycle happening where it is a regressive tax. But it works okay when the revenue goes away because you're achieving the public health aim you were looking for. To me, when you think about this in the context of Philadelphia, it's important to have some sympathy for the dilemma facing elected officials in a place like Philadelphia. It's a it's a pretty big city. And as big cities tend to be, it's a quite politically liberal city. So there's a lot of demand on the politicians. And, and Pennsylvania is a, a state that's not that liberal. It has a Republican state legislature, has for, for quite some time. So there's a lot of pressure there on the government to come up with progressive things to do, to do programs, to do services, to not cut back on public spending, make good on public sector workers' uh, pension benefits, things like that. But Philadelphia isn't a city that is as prosperous as like a New York or a San Francisco, which can really be sort of cavalier in how they treat their wealthiest residents. It's a real economic strength for Philadelphia that a certain number of affluent people choose to live in Center City rather than living in Philadelphia suburbs. And it's plausible that the number of people who do that would actually change in response to tax policy and that Philadelphia is right now on the urban renaissance track that some other cities have followed. But it's not so decisively on that track that it – if you're the mayor there, let's say you have to worry that you might tip more into like the Baltimore trajectory. But you face the demand to come up with more revenue. So you have to think of something to do, right? Maybe I might be more enthusiastic about a land value tax than than a soda tax. (laughs) But a soda tax – It's in the category of things that I think you can say pretty confidently would not be economically ruinous for the city of Philadelphia, right? It's not going to unravel the business and economic foundation of the city. You know, cigarette taxes are, are, are like that too, but they've sort of reached their limit. And when you can come up with something that has like some kind of larger public health rationale, I think you can see why that starts looking pretty compelling, even though I'm pretty skeptical that taxing soda will have real public health benefits. And I think it's strange that when we talk about taxing beverages, our minds lately as a sort of a nation are drifting to like Coke rather than beer, which sure. has a much more obviously negative public health impacts. But I mean, I, I can see where they come up with this stuff is what uh, I'm saying. Uh, one thing I would just add to this discussion, we talked, Sarah, while you were gone about the Raj Chetty paper, Raj Chetty and mm-hmm. co-authors paper that found really tremendous differences in low-income life expectancy in different regions, of, uh, in different cities around the country. And something it, it did find was that Big blue cities seem to be really a lot better than other places were for for low-income life expectancy. When they tried to figure out why this was, health care insurance didn't seem to matter. All kinds of things didn't seem to matter. But but where you lived really did. And one of the suggestions that the authors made that I find reasonably persuasive, it isn't bulletproof, but I think it's persuasive, is that cities have pretty aggressive public health policies. They have a built infrastructure that in certain ways is more social. They have a built infrastructure that in certain ways is key towards the preferences of richer residents. But they also, for various reasons, end up having these very aggressive trans fat bans and uh, cigarette taxes and often alcohol taxes and all these other things. And it, it seems to help. It seems to really make a difference for life expectancy. And something that I think is a, a very sharp trade-off of this question is that whether the soda tax is the right way to do it, you can definitely come up with a tax that would make people a little bit healthier. You could definitely come up with an, an all-sugars tax, or as Matt said, you could really aggressively tax alcohol, and that would make a significant difference. We're, we're quite sure of that. But 
I think this is going to be one of the really tricky trade-offs in in health policy in the coming couple of decades. We have gone pretty far now with subsidizing insurance coverage. The basic structure of Obamacare, particularly as more states expand Medicaid, it puts us in a place where most people, not literally everyone, but but most people who need it can, can afford some level of health insurance. Mm-hmm. But that only has so much effect on your health. And I think that it has sort of stood in for a larger agenda for promoting actual health in this country. But when you get into that agenda and when you get into things governments can do, you end up at a place of paternalism that makes a lot of people quite uncomfortable. You end up at a place that isn't just tax rich people to give poor people money, but use a tax system to go and make the choices poor people would like to make more expensive, such that they can't make them anymore, or at least they have an incentive not to make them. And I think that, you know, you've seen versions of this battle. This was part of the the Bloomberg trying to ban 64-ounce sodas. I mean, you've seen a lot of different iterations of this. The soda tax is another one. And the fact of the matter is these taxes are regressive because they're going after the behavior of poor people who tend to be less healthy. And the thing that makes this very, very difficult, I think, and will make it a very difficult conversation and one that is particularly going to get liberals caught up in a lot of knots, as you see in the current presidential campaign, is that this stuff probably does work, or, or at least it certainly can work, but it is much more just conceptually difficult and unpleasant than the model where you're just using money to buy people services they already want. One thing I would add, I spent some time a few years ago in Philadelphia writing about another public health initiative where they were trying to tackle food deserts and they were trying to add these like healthy corner stores onto different blocks in Philadelphia. And the research there is pretty weak. We don't have a lot of good research that suggests that more access to healthy foods will will increase consumption of those healthy foods, just like we don't have great research that suggests that soda taxes will lead to lower obesity rates. When you do talk to public health advocates there, they you know, will say, look, Philadelphia, it has the highest obesity rate of any large city in America. Like, we have to try something. And I don't know if I buy this or not. Like, I haven't seen good evidence. But the argument they would make is that we have to look at these in a totality. We are trying to create the environment that higher income people get access to that you don't get access to when you're low income, where you do have availability of these fresh fruits and vegetables and you where the healthier choice becomes the easier choice. So whether you're taking soda machines out of schools, soda taxes, increasing access to vegetables, Their argument is it's like a totality of changes that will not change things overnight, but in the long run gives that baseline access and that baseline ease of making the healthy choice to people who haven't had that ease before. So that's the argument that a lot of folks in the public health world in Philadelphia will make. I think it still remains to be seen like whether whether that argument bears out and it's one that like will not be figured out in the next few years. Like it will probably be decades long. You know, that's the frustrating thing about public health with health insurance. You know, Obamacare, you can like give millions of people health insurance in a year or two. With public health, you're just inching along day after day, not seeing the results of what you're doing for like five to 10 years later. It does seem like the specific way in which the soda tax failed to reduce total calorie consumption in Mexico City is sort of encouraging, though. Right, that it's like a it's like a whack-a-mole problem. People really did drink less soda and then they just like did some other stuff. So you could imagine an additive set of policies that got to where you were going, as opposed to sometimes you try things like my understanding of this food desert research is that it like truly doesn't work. They put these things up and there was almost no detectable difference. Sure. But again, like, I think it's it's a little unfair to expect of that to work in like a one to two year time. Sure. Period. But sure. I, think, I think this goes to one of the underlying points. My read of a lot of the public health research is that to make big changes, you have to be very, very aggressively paternalistic. Yes. That I there think is, that's that there is a deep desire that public health researchers would like it to be the case that what people want to do is eat healthier food and exercise more and do these different things. And so all kinds of subsidy schemes get drawn up, make it add gym memberships to people's insurance or give them you know a little bit of money for going to the gym or adding nicer corner stores. And then it turns out that a lot of people make the choices they do because going to the gym sucks <laughs> and like soda is delicious. I mean, you and, wrote like, about this with the Mayo Clinic. Yeah, I did. Where they, I mean, you talk about what they did. Really far to make people change their behavior. Like we've made, we've made it like socially stigmatized and extremely 
personally inconvenient to smoke in addition to making it very, very expensive. And a lot of people still smoke. Mm-hmm. Aside from outright banning all cigarettes, we've gotten pretty far along that line. And, and a lot of these behaviors, the reason people take them up is that they are enjoyable. And so to to change that, you have to really do policies at a certain point that make people pretty uncomfortable. And I think, but so that's yeah. why, I mean, the, the soda tax actually is a pretty light intervention. Mm-hmm. And it did seem to have gotten people to drink less soda. And so it's like, well, okay, maybe, maybe they ate more ice cream. But like you could tax ice cream too, right? I mean – Next week on the <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it seems like really conceptually what you want is some kind of tax on sweetening. Right. But right. then it gets into this like tricky thing about food where you can't tax it like cigarettes because you need to eat food to live. Sure, but, I, I but, 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 I'm going to cut this conversation here because I, I, I want us to have time for the carbon tax. But I want us to go look into the question of why we're not doing the sweetening tax because I think there might be an answer, but I'm not sure. So that I, I would suggest that it's because – you, when you're talking about a city, right, I, you can totally imagine Philadelphia enforcing a retail tax on containers of beverages, right? Them trying to assess the sugar content of all different kinds of foods. You see even with, with sodas, right, they're not proposing to tax Mountain Dew more heavily than Pepsi, even though Mountain Dew has more sugar in it, because I don't think they have the administrative capacity to do something like that. The UK, which is like a medium-sized country, is proposing a more complicated and sophisticated tax scheme. That's what it seems to me, that you could have the FDA do some very elaborate food taxation, just like they do very elaborate food regulation. But you're talking about a medium-sized city. There's like only so much they can sure. they can Although no country in the world has tried this. And that's kind of curious. Like Denmark tried its fat tax. But that's really the only experiment on like trying to hit like an ingredient versus a type of food. Yeah. I'm interested in this question and I'm going we'll to look into back. it. Yes. Yeah. Let's take a break and move to carbon taxation. This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. We've all been there, or certainly I have, you know, come home after a long, exhausting day at work, and you'd like to sit down, sip a glass of wine, but, you know, didn't plan ahead, don't have a bottle in your house, and getting up, going to the store, it's it's too much of a hassle. So that's why Club W is great. You can just relax, never need to worry about having no wine in your house. It's a new wine club, and it sends bottles directly to your door, saving you trips to the grocery store. And not only do they send you wine, they send you wine you're going to love to drink. They've got an easy six-question quiz that figures out your palate so every bottle you receive is perfectly tailored to your tastes. Club W works directly with vineyards to cut out the middleman, which saves you money. And they're even offering a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. So right now, Club W is offering listeners $20 off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. And it gets even better. No one wants to pay for shipping, so Club W will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to clubw.com slash weeds to get $20 off of your first order now. That's clubw.com slash weeds. So I want to talk about something a little bit specific around carbon taxes that our colleague Dave Roberts has been writing about over the last week or so at Vox, and I found really interesting. The policy itself is simply taxing the goods with based on the amount of carbon you have in them. And and this is a very classic economic policy. What you have is a situation where carbon is imposing a social cost that is not embedded in the price of the goods that contain it. So you go to the gas station, you put a bunch of gasoline in your tank, you drive around, you're paying a certain amount for the gasoline, but then the gasoline is creating pollution, it's creating greenhouse gases, it's warming the planet, and you are not paying for the long-term cost of that damage you're doing to the planet. So a carbon tax is basically an effort to internalize what people call the social cost of carbon into the good, into the into the price. And people disagree about how much the social cost of carbon is. You, you'll see very low estimates, sort of, sort of $15 to $20, sort of more medium range estimates I've seen at $50 to $75. But as a general point, it would increase the cost of a lot of goods. And the idea is that it would both have the effect of potentially bringing money that could maybe fund energy research, but also it would move people away from these carbon intensive goods and it would give producers incentives to innovate ways to create goods that are less carbon intensive. So that is a case for a carbon tax. 
the carbon tax has become very popular among economists and among policy wonks because a lot like the land value tax, it is a very clean way in theory of getting to this solution. But what Dave has been writing about, which I found pretty interesting, is that he's arguing that it has taken up too much space in the discussion. So you actually had a, a debate between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton where he was demanding that, that, that she support a carbon tax and she wouldn't quite – take that step. And I was tweeting like, Bernie Sanders is right. Like how, why, why isn't Hillary Clinton doing this? And Roberts's view is that it is actually not obvious that a carbon tax is the right way to address this problem. That if you look at major past transitions in energy, they have not been done by taxes. They've been done by industrial policy, by direct funding of innovation, by all kinds of things that are in many ways much more command and control. And that if you look at the polling on different ways of approaching these problems, a carbon tax polls the worst of virtually all of them. And so his argument is that a carbon tax has begun to sort of hold a strange space in the discussion where it's become a signal of seriousness on this issue that actually maybe is not – it would be good if you could do it, but is maybe not the right way to address these problems and that behind it is sitting the sort of deeper – bias in the conversation where people have become very skeptical of the government's ability to do command and control policy, to do industrial policy, to do regulations, but that for something of this size, that might be the right way forward. Right. One of the things you know I thought was interesting in Dave's article was, so one was about kind of this idea of like sucking up air and energy. And in one way, you know, why not look at all the options? Like, why not talk about carbon tax a lot, debate it? What are we losing? And I guess, you know, the idea is we're losing like a lot of energy wonks and like what it is they are spending their days thinking about. And like, are they developing like carbon tax proposals? And in, you know, one universe where Congress was interested in carbon tax, you'd say, well, you know what? Let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Like, let's put a lot of energy into like developing like a politically palatable carbon tax that we can like really move forward. But that doesn't seem to be this case. It seems like from what I can tell, carbon tax is not moving forward anytime soon in a legislative context. So it's not even like carbon tax is the compromise position. Like it's not like the third way position that, you know, you say, well, let's do that because we can't get this other thing done. I think in that universe where it was kind of like the compromise position, you could see there being value in saying, well, you know, it's not everything. It's not going to solve things, but it's a step in the right direction. But without it being a step in the right direction, because you don't see any action, I think there's a compelling case that Dave makes that we should be taking our energy wonks and like thinking about other sort of ideas. But here, here's what frustrates me about all the poo-pooing of all different kinds of tax ideas is that it's like, you know, yeah, okay, if you look at environmental policy and then you say, okay, well, let's talk about a carbon tax. Yeah, carbon tax is a little overrated. If you look at public health policy and you're like, let's talk about a soda tax, you say, ah, soda tax is a little overrated. You look at urban policy and say, let's look at the land value tax. Ah, land value tax is overrated. But it's because these are all parts of tax policy. And so at some point in time as a society, you have to have a conversation about what is the level of revenue that your government is going to have and then what is the structure of that revenue going to be. And so if you start talking about tax policy, I think it starts looking very compelling to say that if we taxed environmental hazards, public health hazards, and land rents, as we've been talking about the show, that that would be a lot better than taxing people's labor and savings. And that's the reason all of these ideas come out of economist land as things that are, are highly recommended is because when people are thinking about taxes, they're thinking that these are good kinds of things to tax. And I think it's true that it's challenging to try to solve environmental problems solely through using tax policy as a lever. But it's good as long as you are conducting tax policy to try to have tax policy do something useful, even if it's only marginally useful in terms of encouraging the kinds of economic behaviors that you want to see rather than the ones you, you don't want to see. The problem in the United States is that we have a very, very, very sharp disagreement between Democrats and Republicans about the size and scope of the welfare state. So you can never talk about 
an individual tax relative to the overall tax system, you're implicitly talking about big government versus small government, which is a, a different sort of like polarized debate. But the but the reason like economists are excited about these ideas is that they're assuming that you should have a good tax system rather than a bad one. I think that one of the the questions here, and I agree with everything you said there completely, and I would do a carbon tax. I think you would ideally have a carbon tax that is operating in concert with smart regulations around these issues. And, and to some degree, cap and trade might actually have a subsidiary role there. But I do think something that, that he argues in there is interesting, which is that there is a, on all these issues, there is a signaling that happens. There's a signaling that happens among elites, among wonks. And that signaling can at times be useful and it can at times be counterproductive. And what carbon taxes have become is a signaling that, that you are serious about this, that if you're not for a carbon tax, then you're sort of for nothing at all. And I think his point is that it is not clear that a carbon tax is actually the one-shot solution to this problem. I, I think he would say this problem has become overly thought of as an issue of market signals, but that a lot of the times when we've needed to make quantum technological leaps, we've not done it through market signals. We've done it by funding huge projects. We've done it by having the military become massive buyers of certain kinds of things. We've done it in ways that I think make a lot of uh, a lot of us who are sort of raised in, in the more modern economic consensus about what government is good and what government is bad at uncomfortable. But Amidst all the waste that these kinds of things have created, they've also created huge, huge leaps forward. And when you look at the situation we're in around climate change, you quickly, I think, come to the realization that what we need is a huge, huge, huge leap forward. We don't just need to start changing behavior a little bit. We need something that within a lifetime or two brings emissions of carbon in a country like America to pretty much zero. Right. And, and in a way, it makes you know obesity, the last issue we were talking about, and global warming very different issues. Like It is generally a bad thing if obesity continues to rise, but it's not like in the same catastrophic sense of not doing anything to address carbon emissions. And that suggests different roles for taxes, possibly, that like, you know, maybe we want to work around the edges on obesity, but not as much right. and on global just, warming. You know, like, I think a different way to think about this maybe is that a number of years ago, but not that many years ago, America went to war twice. And we didn't pay for that. We decided it was really, really important to do. And we did it in an, in an inefficient way that didn't make budgetary sense. I mean, and the wars and, and certainly the Iraq war did not make sense at any level. But it is to say that there is there are times when we decide as a country that, that things are important on a fundamental level and we are just going to spend the money. And we're going to accept that there are some waste or maybe even like more efficient ways of doing it, but like we're going to do it and we're going to do it fast and we're going to have a mobilization. And I think it's an, in, an interesting thing about the climate change debate that we've sort of gotten into a position where there is urgency around it, but not that kind of urgency, not the kind of let's do it right now urgency. It's more let's create a long-term structure that will over time incentivize a private market. It's not Manhattan Project-like in the way we approach it. And I think if you take the numbers seriously, you would end with something more Manhattan-like. Now, could a carbon tax be part of that? Yeah, that would be great. But do you necessarily need to front load that at a time when interest rates on government debt are negative in real terms? Probably not, right? You could just spend a shit ton of money doing energy research and using the government as a massive buyer of different kinds of energy innovations, which to be fair is something that the stimulus did to some degree and, and is something that has happened at times in the Obama administration. They just made some big energy, renewable energy tax credits permanent. But it isn't the dominant way we think about this. I think that when energy wonks often sort of talk about what is the ideal here. It's not, let's just like spend tons of money and use a lot of industrial policy. It's let's get a, a more efficient tax and, and more set of market signals around carbon. It's also relates to what you were saying about public health, right? That the really big gains you could have, short-term gains from aggressive government policy are on the negative side, right? It's like, sure, we could have our $20 trillion Manhattan Project to develop the solar panel of the future, but in the five to 10 years while we wait for that to pan out, we could just say, you can't air condition to below 75 degrees, right? <laughs> no, right. but you know what I mean? We could just say like- Yeah, nobody eats red meat. Right, we, we could just say like, look, 
There's no no more cows. <laughs> no, and, and if cows. you and if you look at World War II, and this is why I think it's important because even when I hear the more like dramatic, like gung ho coming, they're like they'll talk about World War II, and they're like okay, and then they'll talk about like the Manhattan Project, but like they did stuff in World War II, right? For example, if you wanted to build a house, you couldn't. There was no private construction at all in the United States for five years because. They wanted to send the materials for war construction. In the UK, where they had it rougher than us, they were like, you couldn't get butter. You know, because like you just couldn't. And of course, people survived, right? Like it would suck. I guess. Like I would be, people would be really upset if you just banned butter consumption, but also like life would go on. And there's a lot of things like that that, that could be done. And the idea of a carbon tax. You know, in the 1993 Clinton budget proposal, they had a, a – it was a British thermal units tax, but it was a, a similar idea, tax, tax on energy consumption, and it didn't pass. But like had we been doing that for the past 25 years, the accumulated changes over there it, – it, and it would have been a lot of that kind of stuff, right? It wouldn't have probably yet driven us into like the utopian energy future, but we would all be living like more efficient kinds of lives. And the idea of doing it through a tax is to make it like gradual and gentle and like not impose draconian rationing of, of energy resources. But the longer you don't do that, the more it's like, okay, to hit any kind of reasonable target, you would have to do the draconian, you know, right. just like just turn the lights out now. And uh, I think it kind of speaks to like why these things have so much trouble gaining traction. Because if you're a politician, you're thinking in like the five-year range, the next election range, like what can I accomplish? And like the Philadelphia soda tax is definitely not going to reduce obesity when this person right. is mayor. It might like slightly move the needle like 25 years from now. You know, one other thing our conversation makes me think of is it like also speaks to the very different nature of like war and climate change where war is like a thing you can see on the news. You can like actually like see this like actual threat of people, whereas like climate change still feels like a very distant threat that we like kind of experience a little bit, but not really. And it makes it much easier to kind of push things off in a political system. Let, let me take this from now the other side, because we've had this conversation premised on the correct political point in the current atmosphere that a carbon tax is very much a long shot, probably completely unsellable, that it is an end unpopular. This is a place where I think you really see how much the core issue around this is a disagreement over climate change. Because one reason economists do like a carbon tax, including Republican economists like Greg Mankiw, who was chief economist for George W. Bush, is that if you believe that climate change is a problem, if you began from that consensus, then things like a carbon tax put all kinds of interesting compromises on the table. So let's say that you're a Republican and you are concerned about climate change and you also hold all other Republican views in a completely orthodox way. You could take the capital gains tax and move it to a carbon tax. You could take all kinds of taxes on income or on estates and move them to a carbon tax. And you would move, you know, again, as, as Matt was saying earlier, from taxes that you found very objectionable to taxes that are actually reducing something you don't like. One side effect benefit of this is if we do have big energy innovations, then the revenue from those taxes begins to go down. And now you have to shrink the government and there's more pressure for spending cuts. And so you'll have this happen. Bob Inglis, a former Republican congressman, has been campaigning for this. And it just never goes anywhere, both because there is not a consensus that climate change is a problem, but also because there is a, a broader belief that any movement on taxes, particularly construction of any new tax, and I've spoken to Grover Norquist about this, would be a mistake for Republicans because every time there is a new tax, that creates one more way that Democrats in certain contexts can increase total tax revenues in this country and grow the government. But it's also worth saying that this is a like an, an American problem, right? right? Mm -hmm. So in the, in the UK, the, the conservative Lib Dem coalition was very happy to do what they called a, a quote-unquote green tax shift, which was a way of making the, the tax base less progressive, but also more environmentally sound. The United States has a, I wouldn't say it's not unique, but it's a somewhat unusual configuration of strong fossil fuel mentality fused with a strong anti-tax politics in its conservative movement. So it's like it's, it's a fact about America that that kind of switch isn't on the table, whereas in, in foreign countries, you see much more, I would say, almost the opposite 
kind of view where it's the left wing view is that, well, no, we need like more tax revenue. We need like big environmental programs. And a conservative position is like, now let's fiddle with taxes. All right. Taxes. Done. Thank you all for tuning in for another fun episode of The Weeds, Vox.com's podcast on the Panoply Network. Thank you to producer AC Valdez. Welcome back to Sarah Cliff, who made this episode just so much more. Oh, thank you. Enjoyable, intellectually rich I'm going to uh, go experience. have a soda now. A big soda? <laughs> An untaxed soda. And then, like, burn some gasoline? Yeah. <laughs> and then I don't know what I'm going to do for land value tax. Uh, and tune in next week for more hot weeds action. <laughs> <laughs>